God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. And it's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. And it's been a couple weeks since we had an episode. I have still been around. It's, it's been a little bit lighter of a month for creating for me. I, I only was able to put out two articles this month, and the um, I had a, had a couple weeks I needed to take off from the podcasting as well, just a lot of personal stuff going on. And uh, But I if you remember a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that I was a guest on the Gravity Leadership Podcast recently, and that actually did just drop. So... If you haven't listened to that yet, go find the Gravity Leadership Podcast, and I was on an episode there with Dr. Jessica Johnson, and it was a really good conversation. We talked about the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today put out, and I know there's been a number of podcasts about that. I've even been on a, you know, a guest on other places about that. But one one of the reasons I really loved being a part of this episode in particular was with, due to the people that it brought together in conversation. My my desire has really been in my creativity, in my writing, in the things that I put together to see more church leaders and ex-evangelicals and agnostics or atheists just come together and have a conversation as humans. And in in that particular episode on the Gravity Leadership Podcast, it's it's more of a podcast that is listened to by a lot of church leaders. 
In fact, two of the hosts are pastors themselves. But for me, I would consider myself an exvangelical. I'm not an atheist. Um, Jessica Johnson is is not a Christian. I'm not sure what she would categorize herself as. But we had, you know, pastors, an exvangelical, a non-Christian, all in a common space, talking about church and gender-related issues within the context of the of the Mars Hill podcast. But but for me, it, it wasn't ultimately about a, a podcast about a, a a now defunct church ministry. It was really about the converging of a, a variety of humans sharing our common wonders and wounds and holding them in solidarity together. And so I thought it was a really good conversation. One of the one of the criticisms I've seen from that conversation was that people thought we were a little too harsh on complementarianism. And what do you know, uh, that is going to be the topic of today's episode on the opening is complementarianism. And I wanted to start off though usually usually I start off by sharing reading an episode or reading an article that I'd written on the topic and then discussing it. But today I want to do a little different, something a little different first. Before we get into that article, I want to actually start by reading something that somebody else wrote and uh, something that I think is a more positive, healthy example of love. And that is from a book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. A friend of mine recently introduced me to him and his writings, and one thing, I, I resonate with his writings on so many levels, but, and then when I picked up the book, I realized that he was actually, he's a poet and a philosopher and an artist that was born in Lebanon, which ironically is where my ancestors are from. My my grandfather was was Lebanese, and and so that's where a lot of, that's where my heritage is, and so... I thought that was really cool to be able to to read somebody that has been connected to where my family has come from. So he has a section on marriage, and so I wanted to read that and share a couple thoughts, and then we'll get into the article for today. But this was Khalil Gibran. You were born together, and together you shall be forevermore. You shall be together when the white wings of death scatter your days. A, you shall be together even in the silent memory of God. But let there be spaces in your togetherness, and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. Sing and dance together and be joyous but let each one of you be alone. Even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together. For the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. And I just love the way he talks about this marriage relationship between two people who are loving one another, and yet they are um, 
they're relating to one another with space, a, a space of togetherness, like like two trees or like two pillars. And so there's not this power dynamic going on here. There's there's a a simple presence and a a, 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 a making of the same music, even though they are like strings on a guitar. And I th just think that that is such a healthy approach to take in relationships that whether it's whether it's marriage or whatever relationship you have that you are you each have your own unique identity you each have your own presence in the world and it's important to have that space to have that land that you can create and be in and yet you you have a togetherness in that as well and so I love how he puts that, and um, in today's uh, discussion, I want to talk about a Christian debate that is going on in evangelicalism about how marriage partners relate to each other, and un unfortunately, I've got to say, this is going to be very, uh, it's going to be very heteronormative, you know, man and woman uh monogamous, a lot of assumptions going into this this episode. Whatever you see as is the you know the traditional evangelical view of marriage, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so uh, with that, we're going to start by reading an article that I wrote on my uh, website at rickpidcock.com. and I originally wrote this on July 11th. Uh, 2020, and then I actually updated it on September 6th to include some additional quotes. And the and the title of this is "How Reading Aristotle Frees Us from John Piper and Albert Muller's Complementarianism." Growing up in the patriarchal world of the independent fundamental Baptists where men would sit on couches watching football and waiting to be served their dessert while maintaining absolute control of everyone in the home, the Calvinistic complementarian world of conservative evangelicalism felt like a breath of fresh air. We figured that we had left the chains of legalism for the freedom of grace. We were Christ-centered and living out the gospel. Ephesians was one of our favorite books. In chapters 1 to 3, we were given the doctrine of salvation with plenty of Calvinistic buzzwords. Chapter 4 began to transition into application. And then chapters 5 and 6 gave us our applicational framework. Husbands pictured Christ as the head of their wives, while wives pictured the church in total submission. Fathers pictured our Heavenly Father in disciplining their kids, while kids pictured God's children in obedience. And masters were to picture our Heavenly Master in how they treated their slaves, while slaves were to picture God's slaves in total obedience with fear and trembling and singleness of heart. These applications of the husband over the wife, the father over the children, and the master over the slave allowed us to keep men in charge of everyone, with, of course, a reminder to do it nicely. It cemented God's wisdom, it cemented God's vision for marriage between one man and one woman, and because it flowed from the theology of Ephesians 1-3, to it felt like grace. 
whenever egalitarians would point out that this hierarchy of male power fosters an entitlement amongst men that feeds abuse, we would simply acknowledge that there are some abusive problems out there, and then say that to ignore the biblical teaching of Ephesians 5-6 to would only make the problems worse. The true complementarian, according to us, would rule with love. Of course, while men being in charge of their wives and children didn't seem so shocking to us, there was that nagging issue of the master over the slave. But in a 1998 interview on Larry King Live, Albert Muller wasn't so bothered. He said, quote, If you're a slave, there's a way to behave, unquote. Then, when asked if he would criticize the slaves who tried to escape, Muller said, I want to take a look at this text seriously, and it says to submit to the master. And I really don't see any loophole here as much as, in terms of popular culture, we'd want to see one. On May 15, 2020, Muller recanted his position, saying, It sounds like an incredibly stupid moment, and it was. I fell into a trap I should have avoided, and I don't stand by those comments. I repudiate the statements I made. While I'm thankful that Moeller repudiated those statements, I'm also confused by his inconsistent application of the text. He simply can't pick and choose which of those three applications he's going to take literally and which he's going to pretend isn't there. While I disagree with his literal interpretation from 1998, at least he was being a consistent complementarian back then. For the complementarians who want to take the text literally but have a seed of humanity inside that does not allow them to literalize masters and slaves, they tend to generalize it to employers and employees or talk about how Roman slavery was different than American slavery. But again, that's not what the text says. The author of Ephesians clearly has a slavery problem we have to deal with. And if we're going to literalize husbands and wives and fathers and children, then we can't pick and choose not to literalize masters and slaves. But what if there was more to the conversation? Peter Enns likes to say that reading the New Testament letters is like reading someone else's mail. We're only reading half of the conversation, over 2,000 years removed. I would suggest that reading Ephesians 5-6, to not, from, not through a modern complementarian lens, but through the lens of the ancient household codes, would free us from this awkward power dynamic that Albert Muller's complementarianism traps us in. The ancient household codes were referred to by such philosophers as Aristotle and Socrates. Aristotle said, The male is by nature superior, and the female inferior, and the one rules, and the other is ruled. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. In other words, the husband rules over his wife, the father rules over his children, the master rules over his slave. While Aristotle and Socrates both worked within the male-dominated hierarchy, they differed on how males were to rule and how the women, children, and slaves were to submit. When the author of Ephesians talked about those exact three contexts, it only makes sense to me that we see them as entering into the Greco-Roman household code conversation and turning it toward Christ. The Bible did not come up with these categories. The Greco-Roman culture set up those categories. Ephesians simply incarnated the gospel by starting where they were and showing how Christ could transform them from where they were. Even John Piper talked about the issues of hierarchy here in a recent article praising the virtues of the slave owner Jonathan Edwards. 
Piper said that Edwards owning slaves, quote, is not surprising, but rather fits with his view of hierarchy in society. That is, that some people properly have more authoritative roles, while others have more servant roles. George Marsden says, in fact, that we can, can consider Edwards' attitudes towards slavery in the context of his hierarchical assumptions. Nothing separates the early 18th century world from the 21st century more than this issue. Piper is exactly right to point out that the fundamental problem here is one of hierarchy. This is the point I've been making over and over again. Hierarchy separates people into roles of authority and service, which inherently categorizes people into abusive power dynamics. Piper also provides a biblical conversation about the relationship between masters and slaves by a series of verses, most of which come from 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 4-6, and Colossians 3-4. Piper then claims that according to these passages, quote, the roles of master and slave are so transformed by Christian reality that what they once were is no more, but the social shell seems to remain. What we might call the social structure or shell of this institution is left in place in the New Testament, but for Christians it was only a shell, a social structure whose inner reality was radically new, unquote. What Piper fails to recognize, however, is that set alongside the master and slave relationship in 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 4-6, and Colossians 3-4, is the husband and wife relationship. Each relationship was a hierarchy with the man having the authority. Piper recognizes within the master-slave hierarchical relationship that some, quote, have more authoritative roles while others have more servant roles, unquote. Of course, he doesn't mention that the some who had authority were men, and Piper also recognizes that the hierarchical structure itself was merely a social shell, a social structure, and only a shell that had been completely subverted by the Bible. So if the broader culture con- cultural conversation of the Roman Empire wove husband-wife, father-children, master-slave into a single thread, and if each of the passages Piper cites bring those three relationships into a single conversation, then why doesn't Piper recognize that the same things he observes about the master-slave relationship should be acceptable to the husband-wife relationship? According to Piper, the husband has an authoritative role, while the wife has a submissive servant role. According to Piper, men are divinely ordained to be higher on the hierarchy than women in the home, in the church, and in society. When it comes to men and women, Piper doesn't think these hierarchies are merely social shells. Instead, he justifies them as biblical manhood and womanhood. What I'm saying is that we need to recognize the hierarchy in gender and marriage roles just like we recognize the hierarchy in master and slave roles. Thank God we have been growing out of master and slave hierarchies. But now it's time to cast off the social shell of complementarian gender roles in marriage. John Piper cannot pick and choose to dismantle hierarchy in master-slave relationships while picking and choosing to maintain hierarchy in husband-wife relationships. The epistles, just like Plato and Aristotle's letters, weave them into a single conversation. That single conversation is ultimately designed to point us to our common relationship in God. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 15, the author begins to introduce their application of the household codes in the context of their theology, saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth takes its name. The Roman 
paterfamilias was the head patriarch, the father of the family, or the owner of the family estate. By the author of Ephesians invoking God as the head patriarch, they meant that God is the great patriarch over every family in heaven and on earth. So with God who so with God who relates to us in the gospel as the head patriarch, here is how the author of Ephesians re-envisions the ancient household codes. The husband loves and mutually submits to his wife, the father brings up his children, the master enthusiastically serves his slave. Ephesians is neither creating these hierarchies nor affirming them. Instead, it is entering into them to subversively evolve them toward a love that flows from God. As we apply this to our lives, we must be careful not to literalize and carry over the household code categories of husband and wife, father and children, master and slave, because by doing so, we are assuming that God's wisdom was in the ancient man-made household hierarchies rather than in the transformation of those relationships through the gospel, and we also make room for abuse of others. Piper is right that this is the biggest difference between the 18th and 21st centuries, but that he fails to explain how hierarchical relationships described in the Bible were born out of an ancient hierarchical cosmology. He fails to recognize how modern cosmology redefines how relationships exist in a way that can apply the liberation Paul was promoting in a much more relevant way, having been freed from the social shells of false hierarchical cosmologies altogether. And Piper fails to systematically dismantle hierarchy across the relationships that the Bible pairs together within the ancient conversation of the household codes. Instead, he promotes hierarchy in the areas where he holds power. Instead, we must ask how the gospel brings the unity, community, and love of God to our modern-day household contexts in a way that flows from the father of all of our families. Of course, by doing this, we lose the male-dominated hierarchies that John Piper and Albert Muller's complementarianism depends on. And in losing them, we also potentially open ourselves up to at least considering alternate definitions of the family beyond heterosexual monogamy between two people. The loss of such power and clarity will probably keep many complementarians from even considering Ephesians 5 and 6 in light of the ancient household codes. On the other hand, by reading Ephesians 5 and 6 within Aristotle's household code context, we are now freed to acknowledge the disturbing power dynamics that were inherent to the code, without having to pick and choose what we do with the text. More importantly, we are now freed to consider every family in heaven and on earth as carrying the name of God. This mystical union with all goes even beyond humanity to St. Francis's connection with the entire universe being our brothers and sisters. And to me, that's a far more beautiful good news than waiting for my dessert to be brought to me while the football game starts. So as I've said, one of the things that I'd like to do here is to provide a bit of perspective on looking back on things that I've written in the past and seeing how my perspective of them have changed, has, has potentially changed over time, or is it pretty much the same? And this article in particular is one that I do have some updating for. So like, I actually 
as I mentioned before I read it, I actually up, updated it at one point. And, and the reason I could do that was because this one was not originally published by anyone else. It was published just on my site. And so I'm able to go in and, and edit some of that. So I wanted to add some relevant information. I added some of the Piper and hierarchy stuff that I thought was really beneficial to the conversation. And I also have a, a, a few differences now uh, with where I'm at now from, from the article in itself. And I'm going to save some of that for more towards the end of the episode. First of all, I just wanted to clarify and just bring out a, a couple a couple points. So first is is just to, to see how I thought this was a really great example of how context changes how words are read. When when you read when you read uh, your Bible, when evangelicals read their Bible, they they believe in the clarity of Scripture. They believe that it's communicating something clear to them. And, and that it's it's beneficial for their spiritual life, and, and it's authoritative. But the problem is that they don't often explore the original context that the, the original hearers would have been hearing. And so often what happens is whatever the author of, of a particular passage was saying when they wrote it is not what modern evangelicals are hearing and so I think this is why a lot of my journey into, you know, through deconstruction has been learning from biblical scholars and, and archaeologists and historians. What were the conversations that humanity was having? What were the conversations that people in the ancient Near East were having? What about the Greco-Roman Empire and how that related with the Jewish world? There's so many, what about genres of literature? What about specific documents? There are so many complexities here that you can look at that and think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm scared of that. What if that changes what I might believe? Or you might think, oh, it's completely irrelevant. You know, the Bible's just clear and it's written for all people at all times. But I think that that's, I think that a, a better approach would be to, look at it with curiosity like wow wait a minute aristotle and and and, and these guys were like talking about uh the same exact thing that paul was talking about oh really those exact same three structures of relationships well now what how does how do we line up what paul said in comparison and contrast to what they said to me like it's so fascinating it's it's it's, there's a curiosity and a wonder factor there, and I'm not the least bit afraid at this point in going to hell over having some wrong theological conclusions, and we'll get into that more over time. But to me, I just think there's we have so many opportunities today to, to explore the world, to explore scholarship, and explore what people are writing that... To me, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating, and um, and something that that you're going to get a lot of on this uh, podcast. Uh, one 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 biblical uh, scholar named Michael Heiser he recently said we're either going to interpret the Bible in its own context or we're not. It's really simple, and 
earlier today, I had posted on Facebook, I said, uh, I said, it's quite frankly insulting to the biblical authors to think that while they were facing violence in war in exile at the hand of empire, instead of writing about that to their people within the genres of their day, they were actually making predictions about what would happen 3,000 years later in a genre that white genre that white Western Christians made up. I refuse to insult the biblical author's humanity like that. Love them by letting them process what they were processing through and learning about it on their terms. And for me, a lot of people will assume that I disrespect the biblical authors because I don't hold to their interpretation of a text. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people, especially recently with a lot of the events going on in the world, they think Revelation is clear, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are clear, uh, they prophesied all these events, Russia, you know, about Russia, and, and it's like, no, uh, that's not at all what the original writers were thinking. And and to me, it's, 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 not, um, it's not disrespectful for me to say, no, I disagree. Uh, the Bible was not predicting this. For me, what is disrespectful is to to put our assumptions on them and to force them to, to think that they would be ignoring the things they were dealing with and actually talking about us. It's, it's centering us in our place of privilege. And so I want to have a, a posture of love for the biblical authors as my neighbors across space and time and, and a respect to listen to them tell their stories on their own terms. And then I can do some work from there to uh, figure out how I want to handle uh, applying that to my world if that's something that, that I, I care about. So the, the context that, that you have changes how the words are read. And then, and then secondly, the second thing I want to mention is that the Bible's view on gender roles are still a far more complicated picture than many people care to admit. And, and I, this is where I get very frustrated with the whole complementarian egalitarian debates like complementarians. These are people who, who believe that men are in charge of women, men are to, to reflect Christ and women are to reflect the church. And so men have the place of authority and are the head and, and women support and serve the men and, and egalitarians have more of this idea that men and women are equals and and that they don't have their their equal their quality is not just in in their natures but it's also in their roles that they are equal people with equal opportunities for for uh, whatever roles they want to pursue in life and and and, and even in in the church and so complementarians they, they point out that the Bible promotes male authority and female submission. And, and then egalitarians come along and they point out how the Bible elevates women and promotes equality. And part of my frustration here is that I th actually think both of them are accurate. The, the Bible presents more liberation for women than evangelical complementarians are willing to admit. But it's still fundamentally patriarchy. And, and so I want to look at an, an, another passage that, that uh, you know, some people believe Paul wrote Ephesians, other people don't. Well, nobody believes Paul wrote First Peter. So 
I want to look at First Peter and look at a similar passage and see how how this one is deals with the topic. And so in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20, it says, it starts with slaves. And it says, slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only to those who are kind and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? So, so in other words, the author of 1 Peter here is saying that slaves should submit to harsh masters who beat them for wrongdoing. And, and then it goes on to say, But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because, God also, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So in other words, slaves should silently submit to abuse and entrust themselves to God like Jesus did. And then it, it, the chapter 2 of 1 Peter, it concludes by saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the result of Jesus' bodily suffering here was the healing of others. And so, so by the bodily suffering of the slave others can be pointed to Jesus and healed. And so it's really, it's a very problematic passage. Um, it, it's, it's hard enough to accept what this passage is teaching within the context of slavery because it's talking about being submissive to abuse. And, 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 it's, and it's making that, that submission to abuse a redemptive scenario. And, and and I think that's where um, where Albert Moeller was even coming from. There is no out here for the slave. You're to submit, even if you're getting abused, and that's to me extremely problematic. I disagree with the Bible on this, and I have no apologies for. I will give no apologies for that. Um, this is extremely messed up. So immediately after all that, though. In 1 Peter 3.1, the very next chapter, it says, Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct, when they see a purity and reverence of your lives. So, notice that, that phrase, in the same way. Like, in the same way? Um, so wives are to submit to harsh husbands who beat them for wrongdoing. Wives are to silently submit to abuse and entrust themselves to God like Jesus did. Wives are to suffer bodily for the healing of their husbands like Jesus suffered bodily for the healing of others. Like, if you don't carry those parallels over from the slave conversation to the wife conversation then how could you say in the same way? You would be saying in the same way, but not in any of the ways the passage just mentioned. See, th these are some of those moments in the deconstruction conversation where I, I talk about how my BS meter rises. You can, in, where, where people try to spin the passage. You know, you could try to spin it positively, and, and you, you could point out that, um, well, well the, the passage goes on to tell men to honor their wives. 
my BS meter goes off. You know, that still doesn't negate the fact that it told women to submit to abusive husbands. Or you could, you could try to spin it positively in some way. Like, um, but, but by inerrantist standards, you would no longer be taking the plain meaning of the text. They talk about, you take the plain meaning of the text. Well, inerrantists never take the plain meaning of the text whenever there's an issue like this. And your, your internal common sense meter would be betraying you. And you know it. And over time, I began to realize we shouldn't have to try so hard to make the Bible not be harmful. Because even most complementarians do not accept the teaching of this passage. Wayne Grudem himself now says that women can get divorced in cases of abuse. John Piper, as you hear at the beginning of the podcast, says that women should only endure being smacked for a night, and that if it continues, they can go to the church. Of course, he doesn't say to go to the cops, to the police, or to you know the authorities. It's you got to go to the church because ultimately, white men in charge of the church are the authorities. But there's nothing in this passage that gives those outs to women. So. I think we can use the Bible to dismantle the patriarchy of modern modern complementarianism because there are moments when the Bible liberates women far more than the Grudems and the Pipers of the world are willing to. But unlike a lot of my egalitarian friends, the Bible's not an egalitarian utopia. It's just not. This passage is so messed up that not even the most ardent complementarian inerrantists follow it. So what I'm saying is what we believe about the Bible needs to change. What evangelicals assume about the Bible needs to change whether they're willing to admit it or not. Because none of us practice this passage anyway. I'm not saying that the Bible is completely worthless. I know a lot of people hear that when I talk this way. I'm not I'm just saying that you can't claim it's a univocally egalitarian or univocally complementarian document. It's far more complicated than that. There is both liberation and patriarchy. And so if you want to value the Bible as having some level of authority in your life, then you have to be willing to grapple with those complexities. And understanding the original cultures that the biblical authors were in understanding the conversations they were having, all of that can help you better know what they were doing in their writing. And and that brings me to my final thing here of how I, I think that one difference I have with the way I wrote in this article is that our, I've now come to see that our understanding of of God has to be more complex. Because as you noticed in the article, I I appealed to God being the head patriarch as Ephesians 3 does. But ultimately, that's still positioning God within a hierarchical cosmos. And I don't believe, I mean, it's just a fact, that's not the cosmos that we have. And and so when you change your cosmology, your position of God changes. And so my understanding of God is is more as an infinity, that the cosmos is in God, all things are in God, that God is in all things. Um, there is a, a 
presence within and among and that is always moving outward and expanding and that that is a, a fundamentally differently positioned god than the head patriarch and so i think even even a lot of the language within the bible about god is culturally situated because it's it's still talking about the head patriarch the patriarch the hierarchy the this, the household codes is saying god is the ultimate top of the household code and so i would disagree with the way i wrote the article um now i would i would fundamentally reposition god and reposition the cosmos in relationship to god and that's that's a conversation that we'll get into more over time but i just wanted to give you a a, a hint here that i have some differences with the way i talked about that So one of the, one of the ways that I think we need to approach this is to consider the story that we're telling ourselves and to consider what how how good it is how how good is the story how how life-giving is the story that we're telling ourselves and if you look at these passages where they were set in an ancient hierarchy where they're talking about you know the the husband over the wife the master over the slave the parent over the child like those are all there are biblical conversations to have if if that's something that you want to engage in but you have to realize that the hierarchical context that they were in and if you can at all try to step into a place of objectivity. Think of yourself not as a Christian who wants to follow the Bible in this thought exercise here, but think of yourself as a human. If you if you were to just say say you had like a lineup of stories, like a lineup of criminals, you know, or potential criminals, a lineup of, of suspects, and you had to pick out which one was the one, have a lineup of stories. And, and try to pick out which one of those stories is the, is the better news, which one is the most life-giving, which one is the most relationship-building. And, and, and you go back to this poetry that I shared at the beginning of, from the prophet with Khalil Gibran, and, and he talks about a, a relationship. He says, "...even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music." Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together. For the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. And so you have this beautiful picture here of these strings on a guitar having their individual vibrations and music and sound and energy, and yet they are harmonizing in this same song and and to me i resonate with poetry like that thinking about the husband over the wife the master over the slave like the hierarchies if i were to objectively look at these two things and see which of these books do i want to read and which of these frameworks do i want to develop my relationships on it's not going to be the hierarchies 
And you may say, well, those are, those are in the Bible. And I've come to a place where I'm like, I'm sorry. Um, I, my relationships are much more whole when they're not formed in a hierarchy. They are much more whole when each person is seen and valued and held for the energy that they have and for the music that they bring together. And I don't feel the slightest bit of fear of stepping outside of these hierarchical ancient conversations and in discovering the the beauty of the of the poetry that Khalil Gibran and others are bringing into the conversation. And so that's one of my my encouragements to evangelicals as as you're thinking about your relationship with the Bible. Sure, have it as part of your conversation, but use some common sense and and think to yourself, is this really life-giving to me? Or are there some better frameworks? And are there some better stories, perhaps through poetry or, um, or other, other art, that may be bringing out aspects of relationship that these hierarchies and these codes simply cannot? And so those are some of, of the, the differences that I would have from the biblical authors, and, and as well as from ways that I would have talked about relationship and, and um, complementarianism and egalitarianism and all of that uh, back when I wrote this article. So speaking of differences, there was one article that I wrote that ended up getting a lot of people really angry, and it ended up actually uh, having people tell me to go make them sandwiches because I'm a stay-at-home dad and uh, questioning my ability to talk about, or my, my authority even to talk about theology. And, and that has to do with an article that I wrote about John MacArthur and how John MacArthur was handling COVID and his relationship to both the Bible and his neighbor. And so that is going to be what we are going to talk about in our next episode of The Opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others, and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to the opening podcast with Rick Pitcock. 
The Opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpidcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pidcock.